Uh, let me uh, uh, give a forward view of today in relationship to the week afterward. Uh, today we have uh, Jim Alexander on Enron, and we'll do this as a conversation, except that at a certain point he's, he's going to just do a little straight lecturing on some basics related to unfamiliar ideas in the HBS case or potentially unfamiliar ideas. Uh, this is uh, a, the Enron case is arguably uh, the most important meltdown in the modern history of American capitalism. It is certainly the one which has riveted the world's attention more than any other and Jim was there uh, at the beginning, or not at the beginning, but there in a, it, a, an almost perfect vantage point. Um, so we're fortunate to have him today. Before I go further, I should say it's his birthday. <laughs> and he, I think, doesn't want me to tell you which one it is. And there we go. Um, on Monday, we'll have Richard Medley, uh, founder of uh, Medley Global Advisors. Uh, and that case is about his selling, Medley selling Medley Global Advisors and quitting. And the question is, how could a, how could a business have tens of millions of dollars worth of value? when it is entirely framed around the, the personality of one person? And the answer is he got it done. And he will be a very interesting uh, guest. He's completely unpredictable. Um, and he is famous or infamous for George Soros' attack on the pound sterling. Uh, this was nearly 20 years ago when uh, Soros famous hedge fund uh, decided it was going to attack the pound sterling and Richard Medley was then working for Soros and Medley had inside information about the behavior of the central banks of continental Europe was able to predict their behavior so Soros the Soros uh, fund uh, made well over a billion dollars on one transaction in an attack on the value of the pound, uh, which was, and, it, and the attack was controversial and Medley's role in it controversial. And we'll have some fun with him about that. Uh, you should begin now reading Posner. The pages are small, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a dense book. It's, it's a challenging book. And you'll need it for Wednesday of next week when we have Will Getzman in as a guest. Uh, Will is um, the director of the Yale uh, International Center for Finance. Um, and like Jim, a Yale College alum. And, a, a something, and again, like Jim, something of a Renaissance man. Uh, but he's going to be talking about the crash of 08, which is a pretty intricate story. And... The Posner is uh, easily the best book written about it. 
uh, though not easily the easiest book written about. So, without further ado, uh, Jim is a 1973 graduate of Yale College, and let's let's talk, Jim, about your life after Yale. There is life after Yale College, and how it began for you, and how it carried forward till the date you arrived at Enron. I'll, I'll, I'll shorten the version so that. The details get to be sort of tedious. Uh, um, uh, let's see. Only for you, not for us. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I uh, uh, went to HBS uh, because all the smart people were going into law or medicine. I had a primitive sense of markets, and I knew that I should avoid uh, the smart people, much as I did in my classes. And um, I then, from HBS, went to Aetna Life and Casualty, investing their money bond investment department. To my then wife announced either we could leave Hartford or she could leave Hartford. Uh, at which point I sort of started searching for a job in New York and landed one at a venerable old firm called Kuhn Loeb and Company, may it rest in peace, um, which promptly merged out of existence about nine months after I joined it. And uh, at the time, I, uh, it, it merged into Lehman Brothers. At the time, I listened to my uncle, who was a client of Lehman, and avoided Lehman. Um, I went to work at First Boston, another may it rest in peace, actually, sort of firm. And um, um, uh, then in, a, in an astonishing move of true idiocy, I went back to Lehman in, in 1981 in their energy department because I was interested in energy uh, until uh, Shearson acquired Lehman and it had all the human characteristics of Lehman and the economic characteristics of Shearson, i.e. the worst of both worlds. Uh, and then I being the Flying Dutchman of Finance, went to Drexel till it went poof. Uh, and uh, it went broke in 1990. Um, and um, I then uh, had one last job in conventional investment banking with a uh, New Orleans firm to the head of the firm announced that I had a, quote, uneconomic attachment to quality, unquote, which was about the worst thing you could say about anyone. So I took my quixotic approach and became a consultant um, uh, charging sort of minimum wage by investment banking uh, standards. And, um, Which is maximum wage by college professors. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Economic college professor standards, uh, it's not. Uh, but uh, I think Steve Ross makes a lot of money. But he doesn't make it here or at MIT, though. Uh -oh. That's a separate issue. Anyway, um, so I was... Uh, one of my past clients, and I was there actually at the start of Enron, because I was there, uh, we helped refinance Enron's huge amounts of, of, of debt that were about to go into default unless we had done something when, they, when the uh, Enron was created in 1984, five, uh, 85, I think. Um, and um, one of my clients had been Enron, I became a, uh, an investment bank, conventional investment banking, I became a consultant to Enron sort of working on uh, their uh, attempt to roll up, sort of aggregate into one, into one um, legal entity uh, all of their uh, foreign projects. Um, and uh, after a while, uh, the complexities were such that virtually no one had the institutional memory required to be able to complete the deal except for one or two people. Uh, and. Um, uh, they needed someone who knew what they knew the story to be able to to really uh, stay on with the company and um, 
they asked me if I wanted to do that, and uh, I ended up uh, uh, agreeing. Uh, and uh, then I was there a full nine months till this was in 1994. I was there about nine months before I, the general counsel, and the controller all resigned in the fall of 1995. You spent those nine months, all of them, I think, as chief financial officer of Enron Global Pipeline and Power. Yes, I was. Um, those nine months were, were spent at this subsidiary level as the CFO of this one little uh, subsidiary company of theirs. But during that time, um, anyone who walked the halls of Enron could pick up lots of information. And the only issue is whether you wanted to ignore it or not. And of course, a lot of people's uh, uh, excellent livelihoods depend, depended on their ignoring the information freely available in the halls, uh, which turned out generally to be quite accurate. Was the uh, ethical texture of Enron uh, noticeably different from the general mine run of investment banking as you had experienced? It? Well, that's an excellent question. The problem is there, uh, you can uh, either uh, trace a declining curve, uh, constantly declining curve in investment banking from the time I entered investment banking in 1975, or postulate a somewhat easier sort of uh, old style investment banking and new style. Um, and the old style really was a gentleman's game. I'm not talking about pre-SEC, pre-1929 crash, but certainly when I entered, there was an old generation that was um, um, quite ethical, upright, and gentlemanly. Uh, and of course, those people died out or were pushed off the edge and uh, were replaced by people who have a quite different ilk. And which were, who were much more like Enron. Much more like Enron. Yeah. So Enron is a very young entity and grew up in the period after the fall, so to speak. Would yes. you let them off the hook a little about that or not? Let Enron off the hook? Yeah. In, in by what? I, I don't think you will. I, I, by saying, how would I let them off the hook, by the way? I would say, you know, they, they were uh, brought up by wolves and therefore behaved like wolves. Their well, only advice they Well, if, if, if you are a wolf, you are typically brought up by wolves. But um, uh, the... One of the things is I've been listening to your course, all the lectures, and looking at the readings. One of the things that I've been trying to piece in my own mind together uh, is, is what went wrong? When did, in the course of development of the theory of capitalism, did uh, the theoreticians decide there was no need for morality? Uh, and uh, when, did, when did morality get replaced by efficiency? Um, and, um, you know, at Enron, it, um, it would be a situation where uh, the uh, ethical extremes, the ethical environment was so uh, completely different uh, that it begs the question of, of, of what is morality. And, uh, and what do we base it on? Uh, because uh, uh, the people who work there would find any concepts of morality laughable and merely a trap for the unwary. 
fascinating. Uh, the case has lots of, lots of uh, jargon in it that is business speak. And uh, Leslie Huff and some others have suggested that it might be useful to go through some of that, okay. some of that background language before we do the case. And I'm going to descend to the audience and <laughs> take in the lecture. <laughs> lecture, well. Well, or lecture anyway. let. Um, well, Enron, um, like a number of other firms, got very involved in, in commodities, in commodity financing and commodity contracts. And um, if you're the typical commodity small producer, oftentimes over leveraged, you know, hand to mouth existence really can't take a big flying leap and then hope to make a lot of money, what you typically start to do is, in the case of an oil and gas producer, let's say a gas producer in particular, I have a general view as to what I'm gonna produce each month. And, I, and this, these are prices, not production amounts. But I have a general idea what I'm gonna produce in January, February, on and on. It's very hard to shut down a gas well. You don't, it's typically not really uh, done, uh, you typically just produce flat out and then try to do the best you can with your price realizations. But I know I'm gonna be producing a certain amount. And the first question is, okay, do I take a flyer or not? Most people who have a lot of debt or squeezed for other reasons don't take a flyer. So what they do is they can go to a commodities broker and say, what price will you give me for each month for the rest of the year? And, um, the typical, and or else they can go to a commodities exchange and get the same result. But what they do is they'll say, okay, I'll sell you the equivalent of a thousand uh, barrels of oil and, and gas terms about um, in, in January for five dollars equivalent of price in February. That'll be slightly declining in, in spring uh, uh, as a result of expected uh, lack of demand for gas. Then start to then it'll level out in summer and then it'll start going up. So the, so the commodities broker will commit to buy a certain amount each month. Now, if you're the producer though, there's only one problem. You don't, you expect to be able to produce, but what if something goes wrong with your well? Well, if something goes wrong with your well, you're committed to sell each month. Okay, so what oftentimes will happen is that instead of actually committing to sell a certain amount each month, the producer will buy uh, a, a, a put so that in case the price does go down, he can make money, but he's not obligated to sell a certain volume. So what you start doing is having very many very variations on a theme of helping producers and consumers who are on the other side who also want to hedge, they want to determine their costs of goods sold. You start having very many t types of, of, of mechanisms, contractual mechanisms to allow producers to fix to varying extents the likelihood of certain outcomes for their firm for the year. And they get hugely complex. This is just, just the start. There are huge numbers of variations on a theme, ways that you can lock in certain types of spreads, ways that you can hedge all sorts of variables beyond just the the price in, in South Louisiana. Um, so that's what Enron got in the business of doing. And if you look at it, the first 12 months, there's a very broad liquid market, whether done by the 
commodity exchanges or competing traders. Everyone, very clear forward market. Everyone can see this. And, and if you're looking at taking positions as an Enron, to the extent they relate to widely traded commodities, for the in short periods of time going into the future, it's very obvious what you have. You can tell whether you're making money every day by what happens to the commodity relative to the risk positions you put yourself in. And that's, if Enron had stayed with this type of situation, they wouldn't have made a lot of apparent money, but they'd be alive today. It's a tough business, it's a low margin business, but you can make a lot of money in it if you stick to your knitting. But if you want to make a lot of money very quickly, you start looking at other approaches. If you sort of look, at, and this is for a trading company, uh, you know, and manufacturing companies have different, different types of situations. But you start with the lowest risk type of asset, and that'd be cash. You know, uh, presumably um, very highly, highly rated short-term loans uh, to, to uh, uh, the best types of uh, corporations or ideally the U.S. government. That's great, but that's a very low, low return asset. Marketable securities, still very liquid, but you're starting to increase the volatility of the, of the returns, and you can make more money here, but it's another place where um, you, you have to you really have, a, have an information advantage. What we're doing is we're descending, we're going from things that are easily valued to more and more difficult. Exchange-traded derivatives, that's the type of thing I was talking about where you have a forward, what's called a forward market where people can sell or buy uh, commodities for very clear prices and, and, it's, and it's very well known what exactly the market is, although at the farther you go out on the, the forward market, the less liquid it is. So we're, even here we're starting to, to get to a situation where I know that I've committed to say, if I'm an Enron, I've committed to buy um, the equivalent of a million barrels of oil a year out. Well, <clears throat> how do you value that? There's one, you get one value if you're, if you're saying, well, I'm gonna liquidate it. Another value if, if you're saying, how much would someone pay for it? So even there, you're starting to have divergences in terms of how you look at value, which can be exploited. Then we start going, as we get down to, further down the in terms of the levels of certainty, you have certain types of derivatives like options, which might, instead of being a year out, might be five years out. So people can take the sorts of algorithms uh, useful in, in inferring or infer the algorithm from the existing trading of short-term options, apply them to long-term options, and you get a, a value which is plausible. So it's based upon clear, clear market inputs but a result which is not self-evident because there is no clear trading market. Finally, and this is what Enron really got into, you have unimaginably diverse one-off deals. I'll give you an example. So a family wishes to buy price protection 20 years out against increases in yield tuition costs. And that sounds far-fetched, but that's the sort of thing that Enron was doing, not with yield tuition costs, but taking very exotic situations and then pricing them. And, and so I sort of 
took an example, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 a year, years out. And I'm sure we'd all have a point of view as to how Yale's tuition is going to go up. I mean, if it, if it continues constant, it goes up probably about inflation plus 2 or 3% a year. You'd have a curve, but it would be very judgmental. There, you know, be, there'd be some plausibility to it, but who knows? And no one else is making a market in this. So if you're Enron and, you, and you've staked a huge amount of money, for example, on this one trade, how do they decide how much money they've made in a given year? Well, the answer is they use their own curves. And if, they're, and if they want to make more money, they just change the assumptions. And who's to say they're wrong? No one. And that's what was, that, was, that was what was happening. So you have, you have one-off assets, risk positions, which were nearly impossible to value, where the ability to recognize income could be affected with the stroke of a pen. And if you're able to recognize income pretty much any way you want, perversely, your view of the risk of that type of asset will slowly start creeping into your mind that it's a low-risk asset because it always has this wonderful profitability that never seems to go down, never problematic. Now, normally you'd expect external auditors to question these assumptions, but Arthur Anderson was making 50 million bucks a year off of Enron. Are they going to question anything? No. So they could basically create income anytime they want. The problem, though, is you end up having an increasing divergence between the income you're creating and cash, real cash flow, and you're having increasing divergence between what I might call the intrinsic risk of an asset category and the risk that you perceive based upon your own manipulative control over recognition of profits. And that becomes the, the source of Enron's own downfall, is that they, right at the start of each transaction, they were manipulating the numbers. It wasn't a top-down type of a adjustment like WorldCom, where basically all the people at the, at the subsidiary level were, were doing honest things, and then right at the top, they started monkeying with the, the results. At Enron, every single transaction was gamed to figure out how it could create income, maximize income, short-term income. But once you start doing that, it starts becoming harder and harder and harder to figure out, well, where should I be investing my money? Where should I be placing my, my how should I be adjusting my risk portfolio? How much debt should I take on? Because no one has any idea what the risk is, and no one has any idea what the profitability is. And that, that sounds crazy, that's what it was. Um, one of the things, so you, so you have, so on the asset side of the business where you're, you're actually taking risks on behalf of the firm and, 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 and working uh, with, with outsiders uh, and making money that way, that was all screwed up. But they had another problem. You know, we, and we have basically every public company has to provide annually something called a balance sheet and an income statement. And the balance sheet is supposed to represent the market value, but in general terms, the market value of what you own and the obligations you have to outsiders, which offset some of those assets and give you a net result, which is what the stockholders uh, 
really have in the, in the firm. So you might have $1,000 worth of assets. You might have debt, long-term debt, just could be a mortgage to someone of $500. You subtract that and you get stockholders' equity, because stockholders own the residual when, the, when, when a firm is liquidated, $500. So assets always, by definition, equal to some of debt of, of liabilities and stockholders' equity. But you may say, well, if you're Enron, well, I don't want to show all that debt. What you can do, and I think the techniques would take too long today. I mean, I wasn't set up to go through the techniques. I can if people really want, but it'll, it'd be, it would have to be another day. Basically, the accounting rules, like the Internal Revenue Code, have a series of precise uh, procedures, criteria, tests for determining how accounting will work. The problem with that is that if you are really smart, you can figure out how to end up with the economic equivalent of a given uh, treatment, but have it appear just the way you want in the account. So right here, I could take this debt and I could move it and associated assets, $500 out of each column, and I end up with $500 of assets and $500 of stockholders equity. Smaller firm to be sure, but no debt. So there are techniques which exploit loopholes so that something that is in economic terms of debt suddenly disappears, or that um, if, if I want to be able to sell assets to myself, I can create an alter ego, something that looks a little bit like an independent company but isn't. I can recognize gain on the sale, even though I'm really selling it to myself. And that's because the loopholes in the accounting allow you to achieve form over substance. To break the code, though, you have to have a complacent auditor. And in the case of, of Arthur Anderson, over half of their services weren't even auditing services. They were consulting services. So they were completely bought off. Uh, and you also have to have... Could you rub that toy in a little more? Well, okay, so the way the system worked when I started uh, in finance, you had people who, of high reputation who were the, you might call them the sort of the, the trust gatekeepers. They would have included a major accounting firm, high quality law firm, high quality board of directors. But the problem is that, to, is that very often the reality of the, uh, or put it another way, the perception of reputation and trust and quality lags the reality. So in other words, if you want to make a lot of money in a short period of time, you take a firm that has existing good reputation and the, you use that reputation to be able to generate high profits in the short term. The way you do that is you say, ah, uh, Arthur Anderson, well, the high quality firm, so I don't have to worry about uh, funny stuff in the accounting. I don't have to worry if I'm a reader of those financial statements, an investor. I don't have to worry about whether they're 
basically disguising debt or whether they're basically uh, you know, creating their own earnings out of thin air because Arthur Anderson is a high quality firm. So generations of people could have built up the reputation of a firm, but maintaining a reputation like maintaining a building requires a lot of ongoing investment. And if you really wanna get a lot of cash flow in a short period of time, you just let it start to disintegrate, but people won't notice what's really going on for a long period of time. And while, and while you're fooling them, you, if you're Arthur Anderson, Enron, one of their clients can make a lot of money because this is easy money, this is easy. Because basically you don't have to create value. You merely have to engage in an exchange with another member of the capitalist society who thinks they're informed but isn't. That's, I mean, when we think about how capitalism creates value, to my way of thinking, it's part, it's a series of informed and voluntary exchanges. But what does it mean to be informed? One of the problems with, with you know, capitalism as it exists and not as I read these, some of these crazy economists is there, almost no one is true rational economic man. And there are probably a few geniuses that are, but most people don't have the time, don't have the intellect, or don't have the cynicism to understand what they're up against. So they say, well, hey, good firm, I don't have to worry about it. Well, the answer is you do have to worry about it. And that's, one of, that's why, in my view, this all came a cropper in the last 10 or 20 years, is that the, the self-imposed restrictions which limited short-term self-interest kept the whole system stable for many decades. But once people started to say, well, I don't have to worry about ethics. I mean, that's, I just have to worry about being uh, rational and realizing my own goals. Well, the answer at that point is the whole system starts to go. And this is a perfect example because these are people, the people who engaged in this sort of deception did not have any ethics and would actually view ethics as laughable. That's really important to realize what people are up against. And that is their view is if they're creating economic efficiency, even though they lost sight of that too, who cares about ethics? Ethics is another constraint of a little man. Um, so, right. so and, and let's just make sure you link this to, to uh, off balance sheet accounts. Did you see the connection there? The okay. techniques are, the techniques are, 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 they're intricate. I was going to bring a piece of paper and have it Xeroxed, um, but it's, it's a diagram of a, of a, a transaction among eight different entities involving uh, probably 1,000, 1,500 pages of documents to be able to uh, exploit every loophole possible to create an alter ego entity which you control, but what looks independent enough to be able to shuffle off uh, uh, maybe a billion dollars worth of debt, a billion dollars worth of assets. Um, I didn't, you know, it's one of these things where, here's the problem. In modern finance, one of the tools of the trade is obfuscation. 
the transactions are meant to be mind-bogglingly complex so lesser people, lesser intellects, who rely on reputation to simplify their lives will fall for it. They'll say, I don't understand this stuff, but you know, I know, I know that guy on the board, and he's a quality guy. Well, the problem I, but the problem then is, well, how do you know? Well, I've asked Joe. Joe says he's a quality guy. How does he know? How can you ultimately investigate all these things? Well, the answer is you don't have the time, and you may not have the intellect, and you certainly don't have the money to be able to hire people who do. That's, that's how you can start to gain this whole system because there are a lot of people who expected the old rules of reputation and quality which were developed after the 1929 crash as part of an overall change in our system still prevailed. But they didn't because basically everyone started being lulled into this strange sort of idea that markets are perfect and, and, rash, and rational people will always come up with the most economically beneficial solution. I agree with that. If, in fact, there's some, there's some limits. Because the fact is, when I think of capitalism creating value, I think of it getting around constraints. But those constraints, what types of constraints? The constraints are physical constraints. Or maybe legal constraints where the law really is sort of a, a, a dead letter or a, or a bad idea. But you know, like creating the wheel. You know, you have a, getting around some of the constraints of gravity. Creating writing, being, getting around other constraints. I mean, those are, those in my way of thinking, are very beneficial ways of, solving, of, of problem solving. But the other constraints that people have started to view as just a minor problem for lesser people are ethical constraints. So there's an intersection between uh, sheer complexity and ethical relaxation. Which, yeah. in a, a year ago, when things got really ugly, Steve Schwartzman put together a little round table, which I, I attended in New York, and Nancy Peretzman made the most interesting point, which is, is the one you just made, that if, uh, if there are asset categories which are so intricate that nobody has really worked through, nobody, has really worked through uh, all the mechanics of the thing in a way that allows them to understand the impact of all oh, the yeah. variables in the system. Then um, the, the, all the sort of uh, market mechanisms which enforce a degree of rationality are disconnected from the instrument. Yes, I agree that there's no... It, 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 if, if, you had, if you had accountants and boards of directors who, in effect, did not give traders the benefit of the doubt, probably be okay. But the fact is, most people will give the benefit of the doubt to, to people they view as smarter. And that is, that's a, that's a road to extinction. Right, that is the road to extinction. Um, Let's talk about the road to Houston. Um, you, the book, uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, where you are referred to at one point as the fly in the ointment from Enron's point of view. Um, 
the most conspicuous characters there are uh, Lay, uh, Schilling, and Fastow. Skilling and Fastow. Uh, tell us a little bit about those guys. Well, uh, uh, Lay was someone who always operated from 30,000 feet and uh, big picture guy, super, you know, all about strategy, uh, uh, never got into the operating details never really wanted to know anything. If you produced consistent results, there were absolutely no questions asked. Um, and he didn't want to know. Decent guy in your impression? He was uh, at least as nice as most people I met, yeah. Uh, how, how do nice and decent connect in your mind? Not at all, but... <laughs> Okay, so he was decent. Decent, you know. I mean, it's uh, okay. I mean, interpersonally, interpersonally, he was he was not abrasive. That's one. Bit. Okay. And um, um, so, uh, and Skilling uh, was the uh, was was the genius, the true genius, um, who uh, spanned uh, spanned the. A huge range of of intellectual um, expertises. Uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of people in life who can only look at the details, but are very good at details. And there are other people who seem only to be able to grasp the big picture, but then cannot convert it into actual specifics of action. And Skilling was able to move seamlessly from the most detailed aspects of each transaction to the broadest reach of, of, of corporate vision in a way I've, I've never seen before. He uh, uh, very, very skilled. So he was quite literally the smartest guy in the room. I, yes, I think he was. Uh, and as for Fastow? Arthur Anderson has been uh, killed off, so one cannot, um, one can with legal, without legal risk, Say whatever you want about Arthur Anderson. Uh, there are others that that uh, that, that um, um, there's another party that I'll leave it as the elephant in the room uh, that um, that helped Fastow. But let's just say that the professionals who should have been showing some small degree of allegiance to the shareholders instead helped Fastow concoct all these uh, gnarly schemes because he himself was completely unable to do so. He was just uh, someone who was a uh, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, one of the indifferent children of the earth. Uh, so he was not a peer of skilling. No, no, he was a joke. He was a joke. Uh, he was a foil. All he was, he was just, you had to have somebody that that was basically in there in addition to the professionals from the outside. And, and he was there, but he didn't. So, but Fastow gets positioned on both sides of many transactions in yeah. the story. And, is, uh, and they talk their way through the obvious conflict of interest by claiming his special expertise justifies the role. Right, they're only able to get deals done much more quickly because he knows the assets so well. Right. Blah, blah, blah. 
Now, so they waive the corporate conflict of interest policy in his case. Now, if Skilling and Lay had been able to uh, program you entirely as they wished, would your role have been analogous to Fast oh, yeah, sure, role? Sure, role? Sure, sure. Skilling, a, Skilling asked me to, in effect, to be Fast Al. Uh, uh, when I started at uh, EPP, and I just said no. I was hired to hired to be CFO of EPP, and that's all I'm going to do. Okay, so let's talk. Let's talk about the early days when you're in the role of CFO at EPP. How does what? What's the what's it like when you get up in the morning and go to work, and the phone rings, and you're off. Off to well, the what, um, well, all right, so EPP was 51% owned by Enron, 49% by the public. Um, and the, uh, while I was the CFO and then later president of EPP, the CEO and chairman of the board was um, uh, Rod Gray, who was a, an executive at Enron uh, and, and the parent and he made most of his money from the parent. And so uh, what would happen is that Rob, Rod would come up with some new scheme for Enron to be able to dump some expenses on the minority, on EPP, but really I wasn't concerned about Enron, I was concerned about the minority shareholders. Minority shareholders, which was not theirs to pay, in, uh, in my view, um, and, um, um, Maybe once a week he would come up with some new scheme and maybe, you know, over the first six months, probably totaled 50 or $75 million worth of, of, of schemes that, that, you know, we just had to keep shooting down. Uh, and, of course, once he did that, uh, every time Enron wanted to sell us a project, uh, the process being so tainted, we had to uh, trade very hard because... Um, in effect, I was trading with my own boss. And um, how, what risks did you feel yourself exposed to in that situation? Well, I didn't. I didn't worry about. Uh, I didn't worry about legal risks uh, because I was doing the right thing. I just assumed I had no career. I was going to have no career. But on the other hand, I, you know, it was a little company, uh, and uh, I had helped father this little company that, that Enron was sort of trying to tear apart. And so I, was, I would be goddamned if they were going to get away with it until um, they finally uh, um, uh, announced they were taking away my accounting staff, and then they were going to bill me for the cost but have them report to Skilling's group. And that's, that's a convenient That was a very convenient. So that, that, at that point, the general counsel and the controller and I all resigned. So, you know, uh, and by the way, uh, on, the only disclosure of a resignation was mine. They never disclosed the fact that general counsel resigned or the controller resigned. The person who replaced me um, ultimately uh, indicted. I'm not sure whether she was sent to jail. Indicted paid a big fine, and I think turned state's evidence. There was one more sentencing to prison. I know, I saw this that. This very yeah, week. Yeah, I know, I thought it was all over. Um, 
Now, Spinnaker exploration was the next chapter for you. Am I right? Yeah. Um, uh, I uh, helped start Spinnaker uh, the year after I got fired. Or actually, that my position, I was fired. Their position is I quit and run. Um, and um, uh, it was a, uh, just as Enron was based on making money off of false information, Spinnaker was an attempt to make money off of good information. And it's completely different ways of playing information. Give uh, us the capsule of the business model for Spinnaker. It was, a, uh, uh, the base, it was engaged in exploration for oil, mostly gas, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, with the basic strategic uh, point of view that most uh, uh, most independent oil and gas companies, whether through the overconfidence of their CEOs or macho man mentality, systematically undervalue uh, information and would rather dry, drill 10 dry holes than you know, spend 10% of the money buying a good data set. So we got the best data we could, seismic data, which, which allows you probable inferences about, the, about uh, the structures underneath the earth and sometimes uh, some direct uh, insight into whether gas is around. Anyway, we bought a lot of seismic data, spent a lot of time with processing, spent a lot of time um, making sure we had the, the best uh, exploration group we could find, and um, went into business on that basis. Uh, and uh, consistent with our view that information is key not only did we try to get the best external information, but we also uh, made sure that internally there was a free flow of information so that, uh, for example, every Monday we had a meeting with all the employees where everything was up for discussion. There were no questions barred and all the answers were candid on the basis that it doesn't do any good to have great external information if the internal flows are not good and, if, and the internal flows won't be good unless you truly care about what employees think. And Spinnaker was actually a quite, was and is a quite spectacular success. Well, it was bought by uh, Norse Hydro a couple of years ago. Uh, but it was, it was a multi-billion dollar company, certainly when it was bought, and it was started at a $50 million uh, uh, venture capital deal to start. So, uh, Spinnaker, I've heard you say, that Spinnaker was the inverse of every decision rule common to Enron. Whenever we weren't sure what to do, we thought, what would Enron do? We did the reverse. Um, well, that's, let's finish. We've got, we've got about 90 seconds. Uh, let's finish with uh, Jim, Jim is a scholar of the Old Testament at the Yale Divinity School. Yeah, scholar's a little strong. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I've, I, I don't know many people who have read as many sources on arcane aspects of the Old Testament as you. I think you're pretty, pretty serious. Yeah, I, like, I like esoterica um, at all times. That's why I was in project finance. Give us a, uh, you know, are we all, um, is American capitalism in a state of advanced moral and ethical decay, or? Not necessarily. If people can grasp the requirements, the need for, for ethics just to keep the system going, 
if people don't come to grips with that, I think it's just going to get worse and worse. Okay, there, there's a big point there. If, if think, think now back to uh, Smith's invisible hand uh, and to Hayek and the creative powers of a free society. Uh, all of that thinking uh, has built into it at the very most basic level an assumption about uh, truth-telling and access to broadly correct information. And every single, uh, every single tenet of the, the tradition which runs from Adam Smith through modern economics uh, is founded on that. And for Smith, the ethical side of it was explicit with the theory of moral sentiments. The way economics is taught and the way business management is taught, the emphasis on an ethical commitment to truth has been somewhat submerged. It doesn't have the central status uh, for us uh, intellectually that it did for uh, Smith's uh, generation. I think that's a fair statement. Um, but uh, Jim, this has been uh, as it always is, uh, uh, very illuminating and uh, even inspiring. Thank you very much.